Well, I'm excited to preach this sermon. I, uh, I pinched myself a few times this week, just like, I'm actually preaching Romans. This is my favorite book. And I know I've said that about other books, but for real, Romans, I think it's got to be my favorite book. It's the best. Oh, it's just incredible. And we get to journey through it, every verse, cover to cover, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just so excited. So gospel eagerness fits both me and the text today. I am eager to preach this as Paul was eager to preach the gospel. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 is where we're heading today. Um, what I did last week was give us a little about the author behind the letter. Today, I want to begin by giving us a, kind of boots on the ground. What is it like in Rome? You know, what's, who are the recipients of this letter? And uh, then we'll go from there. So some details about the Romans, writing to Rome. The first thing that has to be said from the beginning is um, the way that they would have received this letter is not insignificant. Right? We, we have email, we have texting, we have messenger. Most of what comes to us that is significant doesn't come in the mailbox. Um, but not so in this day. The, the, this day was extremely cut off communication would either have to go by a person, word of mouth, or by a letter carried by a person on a boat. You know what I mean? So things were very isolated. You just didn't hear news. You couldn't communicate. That we, We're so spoiled in our day with the level of speed and communication that we have. I want you to imagine hearing. You're in Rome. All of a sudden you hear, there's a lady who came, she came all the way from Corinth, and she has a letter. Her name is Phoebe. She has a letter from Paul, the apostle. He wrote us, and it's not small. It's a big letter. We're gathering the church. Come, we're going to meet at this time. We're going to break the seal, and we're going to read this letter from Paul to us. Imagine that moment, that experience. To have all the saints together, the anticipation, what's he going to say? Is he going to come? Where is he? And then to hear this letter unfold. It's written to them with love by Pastor Paul. Is the Lord returning? I imagine it will be like that. Oh. Okay. Now the church in Rome. Paul wrote to Rome from Corinth. There was about three months that he had to work on this letter. Uh, in between a time where he was in Corinth, finishing up his third missionary journey and heading back to Jerusalem with a, a gift, uh, basically a donation that he had raised from the churches for the Jews in Jerusalem who were experiencing suffering and persecution. And so he was heading back to Jerusalem and writing to Rome because as much as he wanted to go west, he was actually going east again. Third missionary journey. Now picture this, Paul is in his mid-50s by now. What we studied last week was over 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago. He has been on one missionary journey, two missions. The third missionary journey is wrapping up, and he's not been to Rome. And they're feeling it, right? They're feeling it. He, you can discern as you read through Romans. He's saying, listen, I, guys, I'm coming. I'm trying to get there, but I haven't been able to get there yet. So he's writing around AD 57, AD 58, and... Uh, he will arrive in Rome in uh, AD 60, and he will be killed 
um, just a handful of years after that. So he will eventually arrive in Rome, but not the way he thought. He'll arrive in chains, and he'll be a prisoner, not free to roam about, but certainly free to preach, as he did quite successfully while he was in Rome. The church in Rome was not planted by Paul. It was founded, likely, by a group of believers um, who were made believers, converts, when uh, the tongues of fire fell on Acts 2, uh, and the, the, the apostles began to speak and preach boldly and proclaim the gospel. It says in Acts 2.10 that there were visitors from Rome. And it's likely they heard the gospel about Christ and returned to Rome and began to preach themselves and proclaim Christ as Messiah to the Gentiles, and the church was founded by God in that way. Now, early on, the church would have been made up of uh, Jewish converts to Christ and also Gentile converts to Christ, but the emperor expelled all of the Jews from Rome, and so there was a massive dynamic change, and while those Jews were expelled from Rome, the church grew and grew. So largely here, we're dealing with a, a Gentile church. There were some Jews who had filtered back in and found a very Gentile church. That leads to some conflict that Paul will address in, in some ways here, but really not as much as in some of the other books. So some Jews, uh, but mostly a Gentile church. This is the capital of the known world. I want you to picture the the Roman Empire here at this time. It is massive. All of this power is consolidated to Rome. It is the seat of all power in the known world, as it were. And so you have this kind of, I don't know, even if they tried not to, it would have been instinctual. Like if anything significant is going to happen in the world, pretty much has to happen in Rome. So I think they were struggling to figure out why Paul had not already been. Three missionary journeys and no Rome? What's the scoop? Like, what's the deal? Um, they weren't complaining, I don't think, but they were longing for him to come and be there with them. Paul saw Rome strategically, not just for the crossroads that it was of the known world and the influence and potential reach of the gospel from Rome outward, but especially to the west, to Spain, which was one of his goals, to get to Spain and proclaim the gospel. Um, and what we see now uh, in this is you've got uh, France and Spain and then also up the English Isles up here, uh, British Isles. We know that in the first hundred years of the church, she advanced all the way there. Rapid expansion. Churches were planted way up in the British Isles uh, back in the day. So this is an important uh, strategic launch pad for gospel work westward as it moves from Jerusalem um, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? Now, let's look at this glorious gospel. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, a glorious gospel. Paul begins this way. We looked at this last week. Let me hit it again. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, important words here. One of the first words he mentions is the word servant, doulos, slave, joyful, happy slave of Christ. That's me. That's what he says. In doing so, he captures all of what we saw last week. 
He saved me. He set me on my feet. He put me on a mission. He gave me life. And I am on my knees before him. He's the king. He's the king. Paul does not seek to ride into Rome like he sought before he was saved to ride into Damascus. He's not coming in on his high horse. He's coming in saying, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of Christ. And ironically, as he says those words, every single believer in Rome feels the same thing. So are we. We're together in this, right? We're, that's who we are. And today, the same. Happy-hearted slaves of Jesus, who is our king, who set us free, who conquered our rebellion and our hard-hearted rejection of him and brought us to life to be his. So humility defines the opening words of this letter. But it is also words of authority. He is a humble servant of Christ Jesus. That's a big deal. We're talking the risen Christ has saved this man and commissioned him to be an apostolos, apostle, a representative, a messenger of the gospel. So authority. He comes in humility, but he comes in the authority of Christ. So it's good from the outset for us to understand this. He speaks for Christ. The words that he is going to write, the truth he is going to proclaim, these words are not just any words. He is bringing words of the authoritative revelation of Christ for the church in Rome and for us at Good Shepherd. And he's been set apart for the gospel of God. This is the assignment he was given. His days he had planned to live this way. Christ saved him and said, no, this is my plan for you. This is your mission. You are going to be a representative of mine, and I am going to send you in particular to the Gentiles. Well, Paul was a Jew, but he was uniquely woven by God to have the, 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 the pedigree as a Roman citizen with all of his brilliance to be an effective Gentile ambassador of the gospel. And God gives him that assignment. So, incredible things in just verse 1. Now, verse 2. I'm calling this a promised gospel. A promised gospel. It's gloriously promised. He says, I was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel is predestined. It is assigned, promised beforehand. This is the gospel of plan A. This is what God has been doing all along. You've heard me say this before. God is not up there watching history unfold and then reacting to it like, oh my goodness, the, I guess I got to send the flood. Oh man, how are we going to save sinners? Didn't see that coming, the whole snake thing in the garden. I don't know, we're down to plan, you know, G by now. I, I, what? No, it's plan A. It's always been plan A and it still is today. This is plan A. He wrote the story before he said, let there be light. He ordained the work of redemption. It's high point in the crucifixion of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. That was ordained by God. It's effect on those upon whom he would set his covenant love. The elect, they were chosen. 
before the ages. This is plan A. It's a promised gospel. And it is bringing to pass exactly what God has ordained. Promised beforehand through his prophets. So don't ever read your Bible, Old Testament. Well, that was kind of like, it's just irrelevant. The Old Testament was like, well, he gave up on that. Now we're into the New Testament. That's where the real stuff happens. Don't, don't see it that way. It's all plan A. It's all redemptive history. The Old Testament establishes the foundation and the, the, the longing for the Messiah, which he comes in the New Testament to fulfill all the anticipation of the old. That's why we spend uh, lots of time in the Old Testament. As a church, we want to have one foot in the old, one foot in the new, delighting in Christ who brings them together. Number two, this glorious gospel is a Christ-centered gospel. Listen to Paul. Listen to how he unpacks this. This gospel is concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now, you might notice how I laid out that verse. I'm going to do this a lot in Romans. Paul will write these long sentences and he'll have these, these explanations that connect back like three verses above. And sometimes it helps me to see just chunks of, of scripture, just like a line and then this line and then this builds this out. So we're going to try to do this as much as we can just to make it easier to kind of break apart the flow of this brilliant man's mind as he writes through the power of the Spirit. The gospel is about Christ. The good news is about Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah promised of old. This is a big deal to Paul. As a Jew, this is critically important. Jesus was qualified. He met all the requirements to be the promised Messiah. One of the most important he must have been descended from David. In his humanity, that was critical. Jesus doubly so. So, according to the flesh, descendant of David. According to his divine status, son of God. Now, when he says he was declared the son of God on his resurrection, it didn't begin there. Let's be clear. Jesus has always been God's son. Eternally so. He's always been the son. But he was declared the Son of God in power as he was exalted in his resurrection. He is the victor over sin and death and hell and Satan. He is at the right hand of God, ruling in power. Hmm. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord, Kyrios, King. He is the one who reigns today and rules he is the god man now i don't ever want to assume the gospel uh, the church that assumes the gospel is one generation away from forgetting it never assume the gospel when you're sharing your testimony be be explicit with the gospel what is the good news the euangelion that we proclaim the good news is for sinners like you and me there's hope we can be forgiven of our sins. 
We who find ourselves under the righteous wrath of God for our sinful rebellion against him, our idolatry, our seeking to be God in in our own selves and and refusing to acknowledge him, which we'll see in chapter 1. For all of us in that situation, there's hope. The hope is that God has loved the world such that he sent his only son to be born of a virgin, to take upon his divinity, to take upon human flesh, to be born as a, as a, as a baby. Can you imagine that moment? That's the Christmas story. Not just a story, it's real, it happened. He came down, he came near, and he took upon our weakness. He lived in human form, the body, a real man, but he never sinned. He never disobeyed his father. He never disobeyed his parents. He obeyed the Lord from the heart through and through all the way. He fulfilled the law. None of us have done that. That qualified him to do the mission that he was sent by the father to accomplish, which was to die. God sent his son not just to live obediently, but to die atoning, an atoning death that would pay for the sins of all who would look to him in faith. Be forgiven. He was buried, and after three days he rose. Why? Well, death had no power over him. The sting of death is sin. Christ, he never sinned. He paid for our sins six hours on Good Friday, and at the end of those six hours, what did he say? It is finished, paid in full. The debt is paid. The wrath is absorbed. I drank the cup all the way. It's done. And then he gave up his spirit, and he rose as the victor. He appeared to over 500 people, commissioned apostles, sent them out, ate some fish, and then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he is today. And here's the thing, there's more to the gospel. He's coming again. He said, I'm coming back. I'm going to come back. And when I do, it's going to be different than when I came the first time. When he came the first time, he came as a a helpless child. He rode a donkey. When he returns, he comes as a conquering king. He's riding a white horse. And he's going to put down with wrath and fury all who rejected him. And he is going to raise up all who have embraced him by faith, trusting him as Savior. That's the gospel. I pray that today, every single person who's listening or here hearing this has embraced Christ as Savior and King by faith, turning from our rebellion to him. Paul knows this. Glorious good news, friends. Now the effect of the gospel. It's a glorious gospel, promised, Christ-centered, and it has an effect. Look at how he breaks this out. To bring about the obedience of faith. James in the New Testament would say, listen, if you show me a faith that doesn't have works, I'll show you a dead faith. You can say you believe. You can say you're trusting in Jesus. But if your life shows no evidence of that whatsoever, then you're lying to yourself. What we understand from the New Testament is we are not saved by our works. You you cannot save yourself by works that you do. Only the work of Jesus can save. It's finished. It's done. But we are changed by his works. 
When we embrace Him in faith, He changes us. When we delight in Him as Savior and Lord, we want to obey Him. We want to say, Lord, not my will, but Yours be done. Make me like You. Make me holy. Think of Leviticus, all of the call of holiness there. Apart from holiness, no one will see the Lord. So by faith in You, Jesus, make me holy. The obedience of faith is the overflow in your life. It is the faith that sinks roots into the good news of the gospel to draw the life-giving sap into the tree that we might bear fruit. We're not saved by our works, but we are shown as saved by our works. The obedience of faith is a big deal. We're going to see in Romans chapter 6, for example, the call of transformation and sanctification to progress in Christ-likeness. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, Paul says? May it never be. May it never be. Now the battle is real. That's Romans 7. But the victory is bigger than the battle. That's Romans 8. We're going to go there. Can't wait. The obedience of faith. Now this might be the most important phrase of the whole intro. For the sake of His name. He's saying, God saves people. He saves sinners like you and me. Ultimately, for His glory. That doesn't make Him less loving. It, it's, it doesn't make Him less loving. His love is real. We don't deserve it at all. He chooses to love the unlovely, to save the rebels, to make them saints. Ultimately, for the praise of His name. I'll just say this. Think, think about this. God has never, ever done anything without the highest motive of that action being His own glory. God works in every single way that He works to make Himself look as good as He truly is. In our minds, when we see Him as He truly is, He's glorious. The greatest gift he can give us is himself. He is jealous for his glory. He is zealous for his glory. He is not man-centered. God is God-centered. He's a God-centered God. The gospel is Christ-centered, and it is for his glory. That's why we say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. That's, that's all I have. He is the only one who is glorified in my salvation. We have a bit of a problem today in churches when there's so much attention giving, given to the sinner and the rebel. Well, God is just completely absorbed and captivated. You're so awesome. He just, just can't get over you. He just, he just, just, oh, you're so amazing. He just wants to save you. I wonder what he did for eternity past before he made us. He must have been lonely and just horribly sad without us. You see what that is? Get rid of that thinking. God was infinitely happy in himself long before let there be light. He created for his glory to make his glory displayed. We carry his image ultimately for his glory not for ours. And the gospel is about God. 
not us. Ultimately, he is a God of great glory and love to design it so. You'll see Paul defend his glory all the way through. There's no boast in us, all boast in God. It is to his glory alone. Soli Deo Gloria. Now, think of this. The obedience of faith for the sake or the glory of his name among all the nations. Now, here's another kind of, we've got to catch this. There's this instinct like, well, yeah, I mean, of course, all nations. Like, it wouldn't be fair if he just said one nation. What about the rest of them? God has to be fair, right? He has to, he has to at least extend in the, the invitation to all nations. Does he? Is grace ever something that God has to show? Let's be clear. God could say, I'm going to save these four people and no one else. And he is still good. He is still God. No one is owed grace from God. I'll tell you what we are owed. Wrath. He doesn't have to go to the ends of the earth. He doesn't have to save the nations. we got to feel that. In fact, the angels had one choice. There's no angel salvation, period. You choose, you either remain faithful to the Lord Almighty, or you will be cast down forever, done, no salvation. God's not less glorious for that. He could have done that for us. So the fact that he says, I am going to send this gospel to the ends of the earth and there will be some, some, not all, some from every nation, tribe, and tongue that I will bring to salvation. That should blow our minds. (laughs) Why would he do that? That's how good he is. That's how amazing he is. We don't deserve that. Here we are in Whatcom County with the gospel. Who would have thought? God is good. Hmm. Now, all of that in the opening few verses, now he addresses them with this pastoral heart. He says, to the loved and called, verses 6 and 7. So for the sake of his name among all generations, among all the nations, and that includes you, the church in Rome, including you who are, now listen to these descriptors, called to belong to Jesus Christ. He called you to be owned by Christ. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be hagias, saints, called to be saints. Set apart to be holy, to be those that Shine the glory of God in Rome and Whatcom County. Here we are. Hmm. These are amazing descriptors of Christians, believers. The word called echoes in all that we saw last week in the conversion of Saul, making him the, the ambassador to the Gentiles, right? Called or made alive by God to belong to Jesus Christ. But here, Sometimes we, we see that kind, of, uh, that kind of power of God to save as almost impersonal. We've got to re- be reminded by the, these phrases here. Called to belong. 
to Jesus Christ. It's not just raw power that saved Paul. It's not just raw power, impersonal power, that made you live when you were dead and lost in your sins. It's love. Love. He, he loves you. He called you out of darkness into his glorious light. Sometimes I tell it this way. I, I love all the kids in the church, right? I love all the kids in the church. But I love my kids in a different way. I, they're, they're, they're my kids. They, they carry my image uniquely. God does love all. His common grace is, is lavished upon all. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives grace not to terminate our rebellious lives instantly. Every breath you draw is an evidence of the love of God. His mercy, his compassion, his slowness to anger, his tremendous long-suffering with our sinful rebellion. But he loves his chosen in a covenant way. He says, I set my love upon you. I make you my own. I keep you and I will raise you up. I will not let you go. Let me give you a, a, an illustration of this. The, the difference here between the universal call of God, this word, this proclamation, this gospel proclamation that we are given is, is to be taken to the ends of the earth. We are to proclaim the good news of the gospel to everybody, every single person in every single nation. Jesus is Lord. He is Savior. He is hope alone. Turn from your sins, right? Jesus himself said this, come to me all who labor. And are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Here's the problem. That kind of universal call, both in Jesus' day and in ours, is instinctually, naturally resisted by our enslaved will. We have ears that are stopped up to the gospel. Eyes that are blind to the glory of Christ. We have hearts that are hard that are set in our own way. We hear the call of the gospel and we say, I'd rather not. Left to ourselves, that is our instinct when we hear the gospel. Nothing. The evidence is that Jesus preached all over the, 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 the Israel, all over the place. There was a point where he was like, said to the apostles, are you guys going to leave too? So many people were drawn to his miracles but not to his message. They loved the tricks and the signs and the making of the awesome tasting bread. But his message fell on deaf ears. We need more than the universal call of the gospel. Now, we, we do that. That's what I do every week. I call people. Turn from your sins. Embrace Jesus as Lord. But here's what I need. As I proclaim that gospel, I need the Spirit of God to do something that only he can do. That's what's the effectual call of the gospel. It's another call. This is a supernaturally accomplished landing of gospel proclamation. It is gospel transformation. It's what the Holy Spirit does when his word is proclaimed. Now, it's always in the context of the word. You don't sit on your porch with no Bible, no preacher, no neighbor evangelizing or speaking the words. You don't just sit here 
and have this happen. It doesn't just happen without the gospel, right? How will they hear unless they are sent? And how are they sent, right? We are sent with the words of the gospel. And as we speak, God saves. The effectual call is shown in Romans 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So he has assigned a destiny beforehand to his elect, and at the point that he determines the gospel is proclaimed, he will bring life to every single person he has chosen in eternity past to bring life to. And he calls them to life. And when he calls them to life, they come. They come to him in faith, the faith that he gives. And they are what? They are justified. They are declared righteous. How could a sinner be declared righteous? Only through Christ and his perfections applied to their account. Only if their sin is completely set upon Christ and paid in full. But that's not the end of the story. Look at where it goes. Those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean? That means that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He loses nothing of all that he has been given, but he will raise it up on the last day. Everyone who has been chosen will be brought to life, called. Everyone who is called will be justified. Everyone who is justified will be glorified eternally with him forever. Mind-blowing. Only God can do that. Here's why I'm so confident that his promise in Revelation that some from every nation, tribe, and tongue will sing his praise forever. I'm confident of that because of this. Because he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He has them. He will send us, maybe through Kathleen or Brenda or through you speaking the gospel. And when he is pleased to bring life, bam. There will be life. He will keep them and glorify them someday. This is incredible stuff. So he says then, grace to you, Christians, you believers, you, you who are property of Christ, fellow slaves, fellow gospel ambassadors, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you have peace with God? Only through Jesus. How do you experience grace? Only through Jesus. Saving grace. Transforming grace. It's only in Christ. Now, longing for Rome, Paul's pastor's heart is so evident in these verses. It says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I was just struck by that. He could have said a number of things, but he says, you are known around the world. Wherever I go, I hear echoes of your faith, your trust in Christ. Your reliance upon him is renowned around the world. He could have said, you are known by all of the awesome things you've done, or you know, you're known for the really sweet building you guys built in Rome. You know, think of all the things that today we would maybe be inclined to fill in the, in the gaps. He says you're known because of your trust, your faith. 
Friends, that's a good longing for a local church. To be known in Whatcom County as a congregation that has a reputation for trust in Christ, for confidence in the Lord, for depending upon Him, clinging to Him in faith. May that be true of us as well. May we be known that way by our faith in Christ. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you. You hear that in him? He's been trying to get to Rome, trying to get there, but the Lord keeps saying, No, I've got something else first. I want you to go to Macedonia first. I want you to take this collection to Jerusalem first. It's like the Lord, I really want to go to Rome when it's time, when it's right. God's will first. He says, I want to see you. I want to impart to you some spiritual gift that, that will strengthen you. That, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. And these are interesting words. I was just struck by how often, as you read the Apostle Paul, how often you see him marked as a man of prayer. He is a man who prays. This is a praying apostle. He sees it as one of the ways he serves God, to pray. Prays for his brothers and sisters. Hmm. Friends, you have a family here. We, we are a family. We are called to, to carry one another's burdens in prayer. It's one of the ways we serve God is to pray. Don't ever think if you're struggling with your health and you're not able to be here on a Sunday, you can still pray, right? There's still a way to serve the Lord. I get text messages regularly from people who just say, Pastor, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Oh, I want to light up my life on any given week. That means so much. And I want you to know that I regularly pray for you. One of my favorite things to do when the church is empty is to walk through these rows. I know where you sit. I see you every week. Most of you sit in roughly the same place. And I pray for you. As I'm standing over your seat, I'm praying for you by name. Lord, thank you for this person. Strengthen their faith. Help them to shine. Help them to grow. Help them to delight in you more today. One thing you can do if you're, if, if you're not already doing it is get a, a pictorial directory of your church family and just pray through a page a day or a person or family a day. Just pray for them. Pray for them to grow. Pray for them to be protected by God, to shine wherever he places them. There's so many ways that we can pray for one another. The apostle is a, a good example for us in this. It's not hard to convince us how significant it is to be in person after the year we've had, is it? Paul wants more than a letter. He wants more than YouTube. He wants to see them face to face. There is so much value in the gathered church to be together. One of the hardest Sundays of my life was last Easter. Sitting at home instead of being with you to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. There is great value in being together 
in person. Mutual encouragement. Just struck by this. Paul wants to bring them a blessing. He wants to be an encouragement to them, but he also knows that they are an encouragement to him. Paul needed that too. He needed that encouragement. And so do people here. And one of the greatest reasons you should join this church is because you need encouragement and you can give encouragement. Be a part of a church family. Plant your feet. Be long-term. Participate in the family of God. Call it home. Call it family. He wants to impart to them a spiritual gift. Uh, years ago, 20 years ago, I, I remember using these spiritual gift assessments. You take 60 questions, you answer all these things, and they're like, oh, wow, these are my spiritual gifts. Now what do I do? Like, pastor, I have the gift of discernment. What, is there a ministry for that? Like, how do I do that? And you know what I mean? It was just too mechanical. I, I'm not a huge fan of that. Here's what I would say. Join the church, plug in, find an opportunity to meet a need. Serve the Lord. Just do your thing, right? I mean, one of the greatest joys of the local church is when he gives these various gifts and passions and, and just opportunities and then we just go for it. See it happen all the time. But here's the deal. Someone has to clean the bathrooms. You know, what spiritual gift is that exactly? Uh, so don't, don't sit back and be like, well, that's definitely not my spiritual gift. So, uh, you know what I mean? It, we're missing the whole point if that's how we think of spiritual gifts. The gifts are given to build up the body, but so are opportunities to serve. And they're all over the place got a couple guys coming in fixing stuff all week long another guy painting another guy finding all kinds of problems with our roof and then oh man we need a new roof thank you lord help us figure that out you know the, all of these things how would we know if we didn't have a guy who was given his time and his know-how with a screwdriver up on the roof jabbing through rotten wood in our roof how would we know that praise god for that gift Go get them. There's so many ways to serve. But not if you're on the carousel of Whatcom County. The church floating, church hopping carousel. Get off the carousel. Join a church. Plant your feet and stay for a long time. Be part of the family and serve. But none of that is in the text. That's not what Paul's talking about. That was just thrown in. Here's what I think Paul's talking about. He's talking about some roots. I think Paul wants to give this Roman church the gift of gospel roots. This is the most expansive build-out of the glorious gospel in your New Testament. He knows this church, they're not drawing on Jewish roots. They don't have all of the building blocks to work with like another church that is rich with Jewish influence in history. So he comes in and he is going to bring them a gift. He's going to build it out. I like to think of Paul as the mechanic. Okay, he's the, he's the mechanic. So let's say you're saved and you're driving around the car of the gospel. Okay, and let's just say it's a Hellcat. Right? I mean, it's, it's not an ordinary. This car rips. It is powerful. 
I went for a drive in a Hellcat, and I, after that experience, I was smiling for three days after that. You'd pin me in my seat like that. That's power. That's the gospel. But we're driving the car, right? You get in, you turn the key, like, oh, this man, wow. It's amazing. It's life. And you put it in gear and you push the pedal, then it goes. You could drive through life. Here's the thing. How do you know what's going on under the hood? You need a mechanic to say, hey, come on over here. Let me show you how awesome this gospel is. Pop the hood. Come on. Look under here. Let me show you how this works. See, see this thing has a Hemi, right? This, uh, this is how it works. This is the alternator, and it spins this thing, and then this is a piston and a crankshaft and a transmission. And that's what Paul's doing in Romans with the gospel. He is taking that slow motion, explode out. Here's all the pieces of the gospel that you never even thought about when you were driving around as a Christian. I'm going to put you some roots so that you, the next time you drive this car and push that pedal down, you're going to say, glory be. What power there is in this gospel. Paul the mechanic. That's what the book, book of Romans is. He's going to take us under the hood and show us the power of the gospel. And I can't wait. It is a stunning gospel that we have. Rome, they, they had no idea as they began this letter all of the treasures he was going to unpack. And I think when he arrived in Rome a couple years later, they had all kinds of questions. Hey, tell us more about that alternator. Like, oh, that's, that's blowing up. We never heard that before. Yeah, that's good. Let's go. He goes on. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. By who? By the Lord. In order that I may reap. I want to come that I may reap a harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. His longing is to be there. He wants to be with them. He wants to preach. I was just struck by this. The gospel that he longs to proclaim in Rome is good news for all peoples, for men and women, for old and young, for rich and poor, for the learned, the elite, you know, and the unlearned, or the barbarians. Good news. Good news for everyone. All kinds of peoples. And so Paul is eager to preach. We're going to see how next week connects to his eagerness. Gospel eagerness this week, next week gospel power when he says, I am unashamed of the gospel. I've driven that car. I know the kind of power that that engine produces. We can preach this gospel in Rome. Hmm. And I, this is my little tag on. Rome, while you wait, here's the most epic letter ever written in the history of the world. Right? The, the book of Romans. The letter to the Romans. And that's where we're heading in the coming weeks. So, church, our response this morning, three things. A longing, a desire, a prayer, really. Lord, make us known as a people of faith in Christ. 
may that be what we are known for in this county, right? Tenacious faith, faith to trust, faith to obey, the obedience of faith, faith to cling to him when all hope seems lost and we won't let go because he's promised and he's faithful and he will come. All I have is Christ and that is enough. Gospel prayers, may we be defined as a people of prayer, like the Apostle Paul. Please pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for the elders in our church as we seek to shepherd faithfully, to teach God's word faithfully, to stand and be faithful to the Lord with you. As we pray for you, pray for us. Gospel prayers. Pray for the lost. Lord, use me in the workplace. Help me shine. Help me be more bold. Help me stand out in this dark day. And last, gospel eagerness. Are you eager with the gospel? This is a tough question. Sometimes, you know, as in the past, we've taught a lot of classes on evangelism and, and stuff. I, I, I feel like sometimes Christians hear that word evangelism and just like, oh, 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 man, that's hard. Oh, right. I get it. I get it. Don't think about the word evangelism. Think about Christ. Think about the glory of Jesus Christ. Think about what he's done in your life. If you had a Hellcat with a Hemi, what would you be talking about in the workplace, right? If you had that kind of power plant that drove your car, you couldn't shut up about it. That's what you got to do with the gospel. Talk about it like that. It's that amazing. Gospel eager. I can't wait to tell you what he did in my life. I can't wait to tell you the power of God for salvation. Let's pray. Oh God, we delight to be called your children, all of grace. We don't deserve it. Here we are, all the way out, way far from Jerusalem. We're part of that group, the nations. And here we are, the some. Some from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And Lord, we are delighted that you would set your covenant love upon us and show us your son, Jesus. We don't deserve it, but we love what we see. We delight in your love for us and we glorify your great name. We pray that we would be a people of faith who trust you, a people who are defined by our prayers and our dependence upon you, a people who long to see your kingdom established in this world. Lord, use us, we pray. Thank you for our missionaries who've gone so far from home, but we also know that we've got work to do right here, right here in our own county. There's, this place is dark, Lord. You know, and you've put us here to shine. Make us eager this week to point out the glory of this gospel. Oh, Lord, use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.